Hey folks, you're listening to How to Win a Campaign, where you get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to win campaigns, but also how to build movements. I'm Joe Fold. And I'm Martin Diego Garcia, and you can find us at The Campaign Workshop on Instagram and on Threads. Welcome and thanks for listening to this episode of How to Win a Campaign Season 4. And be sure to check out the rest of the season if you haven't already. So, Joe, I mean, you and I are in this day-to-day, but it really seems like everything is moving digital these days, right? You can get your groceries online. You can get thing, anything really delivered to your doorstep digitally. And I know earlier this season, we talked to Maria Urbina about sort of traditional media and how you use that in a movement. But today, we're going to really dive into the digital space and what it looks like to incorporate digital tools, tactics, strategy, right, in movement building, and get advice on how to do it effectively to utilize digital media, digital tools, really to help build a robust movement and and hopefully give you some mistakes to avoid. This is an important topic because it is ever-changing. And what I'll say is the definition of digital feels like it's ever-changing. If I ask you, what is digital? And I ask, whatever, 10 different practitioners in the digital space, they're going to give me different answers about what the meaning of digital is. Some may come back and say, it's email. Some may say it's, you know, digital video or OTT, right? We'll get there on terms, but I'm just going to throw out random terms. We'll do a quiz at the end, Martine, I swear. But some will say that it's SMS and text messaging. They'll define that is digital. Some will, you know, say that it is only social, right? That that is digital. People have lots of different meanings. Our view at the campaign workshop, it's all of the above and more because digital is this ever-changing landscape. We have to get ready and know that it's going to continue to change and grow. And that's the fun and the challenging part. Martine, what are your top pieces of advice out there that you think about when it comes to digital. The digital space is continue and will continue to change, right? I think in the same way that like radio and TV came around and changed the way in which we understand information, digital has done the same thing. And it continues to change a lot. And so I think my biggest piece of advice is having to be adaptable. There are a million and one ways that the the internet and and digital tools can be integrated into your organization. And it's really thinking about ways that you can utilize them to continue to develop and advance your strategy, your organization, your mission, your movement, right? And this requires not only seeking, but being open to feedback and be willing to make those improvements so that you're involving to the needs of your supporters and your members and your audience. I remember signing up for Facebook in college when you actually needed a .edu email address right, to be a member of this social media platform. Even in my first job, I remember like this was a responsibility like just the interns had. And I was a political intern and, and my sort of communications intern was in charge for the, or- the, the entire organizational's digital strategy and execution, right? I will say that that intern who is, who is a dear friend of mine has now gone on to work for some of the like largest names and companies in the world because of their start and now their like intimate understanding of how to utilize digital. And now there are organizations who have full digital departments, Stand Up America included, where that is their brand and butter. That is that is sort of the sole thing that they do. And so we have seen it change so much. But Joe, you have also been sort of firsthand seeing how <laughs> not only the digital space has changed, but, but how movements and organizations have been able to integrate it into their work. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen over time? I first started doing digital work in 2003. And I will say that what that definition of digital is has changed since then. So email, flash ads, digital advertising, but not a lot of video at that point, right? And now the digital space has really moved into video, but we're still doing some of the things that we did in 2003, right? We're still doing display ads in some way. We are still doing email in some way. And I've actually seen this rise of social and then frankly, like a falling off of like as much reliance on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever we're calling it today change a little bit. And I've seen people now do a better job than they used to about integrating digital in the 
in-person stuff that they're doing and thinking about it holistically as a part of a campaign as opposed to just this offshoot section that was frankly, originally like relegated to interns. But what I'll also say is be nice to your interns because as you said, many of my interns have now gone on to run like advertising agencies and like huge digital agencies and because they were there at the beginning and actually spent time on this thing that people were not really paying attention to as much as they should. And now these days it is much more centered as a part of movements as a way to communicate than it ever was. But I think it now still needs to be integrated in the other things you do. Currently, right? Like I think some of the more modern movements that we can point to, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, immigration reform, I think without the access to these digital tools, they would have not gone and as much attention grown as big right like made as much of a wave as they would have had these tools not been available and accessible to folks right because digital tools and tactics really help you meet your audience meet your people where they are like literally on their computers their tablets their phones right you're meeting them in their pocket it's so funny that i think regardless of age these days i go home now and my 70-year-old parents are sitting next to my seven- and five-year-old nephews, and they're both watching TV while all on their phones or their iPads or whatever they are, right? And so it doesn't even break down by age anymore. It's like everybody is involved in some way, and you're able to reach them. I read a study, and this was probably a couple years ago, right, that on an average day, the average person will reach for their phone over 150 times a day. And I challenge you to count to see how many times you reach for your phone a day. It really does allow you to get a specific message to a specific human right in the palm of their hand, which, I mean, wasn't even a decade, two decades ago possible. And what I'll say is when I started out in this business, I remember very clearly, and again, this is just for illustration, it is going to show how old I am, so forgive me. I remember the day I first had a computer at my desk in 1996 that had email attached to it. And I am positive there are people listening to the show who were not born in 1996, so it's totally okay. I forgive you. Anyway, but – then moving on to those moments, then I remember like the progression of digital ads. And I remember still at that time, right in the early 2000s, we were fighting for a little bit of money to be put on the digital communication. Now we're sort of at a point where Instead of the majority of people in the country, it used to be that everyone was watching broadcast news. Now the majority of people are streaming their news. They're not sitting and watching it on TV anymore the way that we watch it on TV or used to, right? Through the antenna, right? No, they're like watching it through like their fire stick or they're watching it after on their computer somewhere or on their phone. <laughs> or, or Google's giving it to me on well, my Google Home. <laughs> that's right. On your Google Home, you're saying, hey, Alexa, give me the news, right? That's what you're doing. And I was hoping at that moment Alexa would talk back in the background, but did not happen. But you get the point that like the world has changed. And now that we are focused much more on streaming, much more on digital as how we get our information, we have to adapt. But then we also have to think about there's not just one medium anymore, right? It used to be that you could reach everybody through broadcast TV. So that's why campaigns and movements, you know, engaged with people in that way. Now, with the change in the way press is, the change in the way that we consume media, we have to think about this in different ways. And that makes, you know, digital more powerful. It also makes grassroots more powerful. And how do we fuse the two? That, to me, is the future of digital. Well, and that it's not just the people who can raise the money who have access to these tools, right? Like everybody has access to Facebook and Instagram and X and threads and TikToks and can, from the comfort of their own home, right, create content that can reach millions of people, right? It's no longer just these traditional media outlets who can broadcast a message, an action, uh, awareness, right, across the country globally, right? If you are not thinking about digital, welcome to the 21st century. But you really do have to incorporate it as part of your strategy and not a siloed part of your strategy, but like as Joe mentioned, right? Like a really integrated one 
again, with a goal in mind, right? Because you want to make sure that if you're doing it for awareness or education, engagement, right? You're building support, you're having folks take action. Maybe it's a little bit of all the above. Understanding what you're trying to utilize your digital components for is really going to help you better understand which platforms, which tools, which tactics are going to be the most important for you that align with what you're doing and help you advance your mission, right? And so really it's about meeting the people you need to be where they are and understanding if those folks are on Facebook, are those folks on TikTok, are those folks, right, you have to run digital ads to find them because they're streaming their news on on some sort of streaming platform, right? And so I think the piece about this is, is you have to really weave it into the overall strategy because it can be so impactful and so powerful. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. I think sometimes with all the digital tools out there, we become overly tactical and less strategic. And we have to think about our overarching strategy and how digital fits into over overarching strategy as opposed to just saying, we need to be doing all these digital things without thinking about how the strategy fits first. And again, those are the mistakes. But I am so excited that you got to have this conversation with Christina and can't wait to hear more about her solutions around this. So looking forward to it. I think what she really sort of hit on, right, was the understanding of there's not one of the things that we we really sort of hone in on when it comes to digital. Like there are many different ways to have it help you implement immediate strategy, long-term strategy, right? Because it is really important that you have an understanding of how to utilize it in a way that's, again, going to help you achieve your mission. I think we definitely saw in the early days of COVID, many organizations really scrambling to pivot because they had not invested in digital at all, right? And you and I helped a couple of organizations sort of figure out how to achieve their goals when they'd never sort of engaged in this space before. And it's really amazing to see how some of these organizations are continuing to utilize these tools to grow their impact and have really kept them as part of their overall strategies, right? And I think, yes, can it be tricky to employ sometimes and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to sort of fail forward. But I think it's really important to understand that if you're not investing in digital yet, you should be. Christina really gets to go into the pieces that help you understand how to do that effectively. And so Super excited for our guest today, Christina Harvey, who is leading Stand Up America, which is a national organization of over a million supporters engaging in digital advocacy on a number of different democracy issues. She's going to dig into uh, all of that with us. So stay tuned as we dig deeper and we will be right back. And we're back. I'm super excited about today's guest, Christina Harvey. Christina is the executive director of Stand Up America, an organization that uses a digital focus to campaign for representative democracy. She previously held positions as the senior advisor to the New York State Attorney General and chief of staff to the New York State Senate, as well as numerous state and local campaigns. I'm particularly excited about this because I've been able to work with Christina over the last couple of years and, and have been able to see her brilliance firsthand. So, Christina, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me, Martine, and thank you for all the amazing work that you've done in this space, both in building movements and supporting movement builders. Oh, of course. I get to work with folks like you, so it makes my day job super easy for me. We start every episode about digging into the background of the folks who we're talking to, to really give light to how folks got into the where they are today. So same question for you. You have a good bit of experience in a variety of different areas in politics. Can you talk us through how you got here? Sure. I'll start from the beginning, from before the resume. So I was born and I grew up in West Virginia. I am literally a coal miner's daughter. I was raised not by my dad, but by my mom, who was a single mom. And she worked at the local telephone company. She was a union member. She was a member of the Communication Workers of America. And every three years, they would enter contract negotiations. And every three to six years, there would be a strike. So I stood on my first picket line with my mom when I was six years old. So I definitely got a career in activism starting early. I remember when her contract was up for renewal and they were on strike again when I was 12, walking down the street to the local union office to ask for money to pay our bills. So <laughs> I definitely had a, a strong start in the labor movement and was taught by my mom to stand up for yourself and stand up against the powers that be, even when it was hard. 
But I think even more importantly, I was taught by my mom to not just look at, you know, what your needs are and what you can see immediately around you, but to have compassion for other people and think about the struggles and needs of other people. Yesterday, I was thinking about a moment I hadn't thought about in a long time related to my mom. Uh, When I was in middle school and early high school, it was the early 1990s, and it was pretty, pretty early in the AIDS epidemic. And I was just thinking about the years that my mom spent volunteering at what was basically a local hospice house for mostly gay men who were living with AIDS at a time when there was a ton of stigma around AIDS and also around being gay and thinking about my mom cooking food for folks and bringing it to the hospice and staying and just keeping folks company and helping with cleaning and the usual household tasks and how that really taught me that at the basis of everything that I do as a person and that we do as activists and public servants and movement builders, that compassion has to be the foundation of that or, or we're lost those, I think, are some important early memories in thinking about myself as, as an activist and a person in movements. As I got a little older, I had the amazing opportunity to go with an organization called Witness for Peace and spend a summer in Nicaragua talking to folks who were doing grassroots local organizing in urban settings and in rural settings about their struggles and also thinking about how U.S. foreign policy was impacting their daily lives and their ability to thrive and provide for their families. And I had the opportunity when I came back to the United States as I finished high school to do solidarity work between West Virginia and Nicaragua and to really kind of pull on those union roots in some of that work. So for example, we did flyering at the local mall about the Philip Van Heusen factory conditions. And we had Folks in West Virginia going into J.C. Penney to talk to the manager about the conditions at the Philip Van Houston factory in Managua and say that they would not continue shopping at J.C. Penney if J.C. Penney didn't do something to address the fact that a major supplier was treating their workers in this way. And so I think that really opened my eyes too to the ability of people to actually get something done and fight back against the powers that be if we refuse to let ourselves be divided and see that we're actually all in the same fight. And dividing us is is what those who seek to control us and to oppress us want to do. Those were definitely some you know important early lessons. I left West Virginia and I came to New York City where I still live to go to college. And after I graduated from college, I became a union organizer, which might not come as a big surprise, given everything I've said so far. (laughs) And I worked mostly in Newark and in New Jersey with home health aides, largely Hispanic immigrants who were working in home health care who didn't have a central job location. So my job for at least a year and a half was literally all about knocking on doors for six days a week, eight to 10 hours a day. Uh, And so that's a really important skill to learn (laughs) if you are going to be involved in organizing or in electoral politics. I think I knocked enough doors to last me my entire life, but there were still more doors to be knocked in my career. You met your quota. You met your quota. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I met my quota. I somehow got recruited to work in the New York State Senate after that for a very progressive state senator and really learned about how you play the inside-outside game, and how advocacy and government and electoral politics connect and how you need to pull on all those levers in order to make progressive change. So I, you know, some of the the bigger accomplishments while I was working in the New York State Senate uh, were the repeal of the Rockefeller drug laws, which were these really draconian laws that imposed harsh mandatory minimum sentences for low-level drug crimes, and passing the first millionaire's tax in New York. And those those changes were really achieved because we were organizing on the inside with other state senators and state assembly members and their offices, helping the organizers on the outside by giving them the information and the, the strategy that they needed to also put constituent pressure on those elected officials 
and then putting the electoral pressure on by going into Republican districts and campaigning on those issues so that some Republicans and moderate Democrats had to eventually fold because they were worried that they would be defeated or lose their majority on those issues. So I had the amazing opportunity to work on a lot of different state Senate campaigns as we sought to flip the New York State Senate, which some folks might be surprised was Republican for decades to flip the New York State Senate to Democratic control. And then my boss had the opportunity to run for attorney general. I was the policy director on his campaign. That was my official title. But really, I, I did all the things before anyone even worked on the campaign. <laughs> and he was elected New York attorney general. And that was an amazing opportunity to see how in an office, which you know folks think of as a prosecutorial office, where you might think, oh, this is you know, a bastion of conservatism, <laughs> that there are opportunities to really make a positive impact in people's lives if you get the right person in there with the right politics and the right goals. And so we, you know, we were able to do things like investigate Donald Trump and his fraudulent Trump University. <laughs> Woo, yay. Yeah, that was scamming people who just were looking for their, you know, their next career or a way to get by to get the largest settlement in history with the big banks who caused the national mortgage crisis yep. to creatively figure out how to close the gun show loophole in New York. And so that was just an absolutely amazing opportunity that I had to do that work. Um, that came to a shocking end when in 2018, to my deep surprise and to I think everyone in the office's deep surprise, our boss, the attorney general, had his own Me Too moment and was publicly accused of basically going home at night and getting drunk and beating up his girlfriends. And that was just, I think that was a gut wrenching moment for many of us, but a gut wrenching moment for me in particular, because I had spent 15 years working through this person to achieve all of these progressive policy ends. It was absolutely gut wrenching. It felt like someone had reached into my body and pulled out all of my internal organs <laughs> and turned me inside out. I remember the morning after it happened, laying on the floor of my living room, just staring up at the ceiling fan, watching it spin around and around in utter shock, just thinking, you know, what the hell happened? Honestly, thinking that my career was over, that this was it, that, you know, the peak of my career in my life had happened and it was all going to be downhill from here. And also that there are so many more victims than I ever realized of the bad behavior of men in particular in politics and in all industries uh, that, you know, the public may focus on the consequences for them for their bad behavior. But there are so many people in so many industries whose lives and careers and, and livelihoods depend on them and the work that they have done to elevate and support these people that just, you know, come crashing down that we don't really think about. Yeah, I mean, just like that, they get touched, destroyed, like impacted, the trauma that's there, the processing you have to do, right? Like, even outside of the two folks involved in the incident, right? Like there are ripple effects beyond what I would imagine anybody could imagine. Yeah, I have been chased by quite a few reporters and have never talked about this. <laughs> to anyone. So you're, you're, the, this is the first time Exclusive. I've ever talked about it publicly. <laughs> well, I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, first of all, I love a good story of self. So thank you for saying that. Cause I think I even learned a little bit more about sort of your background and how you, the perspectives you bring to the work that you, you do at stand up. And first of all, kudos to your mom. I mean, she sounds just like a badass. I was also a union baby, right? Like also was on my first boycott out in California with my dad, who was a, a labor leader. And then to hear about the hospice care. I mean, like, first of all, as a gay man, thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean, like, that was the type of work that really did take a high level of like seeing other humans as humans and understanding that need for compassion that I totally see in your work and see in a lot of folks' work across the movement that like 
it can't be just about winning. Like you have to bring your heart into it or, or like what's the purpose we're doing it for. And it sounds like that was ingrained in you very early on, which again, kudos to your mom. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you got to stand up and what you all are doing now? Yeah. So as it turns out, though, as I was laying on the floor, staring up at the ceiling fan, I thought the best days of my career were behind me. They were not. There were much better and more exciting things to come. After some time figuring out exactly what it was I wanted to do next, I ended up at Stand Up America um, a bit because I was running away from something. I definitely didn't want to work for another elected official at that point in my career, but also because I was I was running towards something. Stand Up America's mission is to build the democracy we deserve. We have about 2 million members in every state in the country who are fighting to protect and expand voting rights, to pass public financing of campaigns so that a more diverse group of people can run for office and win, and to break down other structural barriers that conservatives have put up to progress. And all of those goals are really not the end-all be-all in themselves, but they are foundational to any progress that we want to make as a country. Whether you care about economic justice or workers' rights or fairer immigration policy or reproductive rights or saving the planet that we all live in or police reform, no matter what you care about, in order to actually get it done, we need a democracy that functions for everyone. Agreed. And, and I know this, but you all do this very mainly in a digital capacity, right? And, like an, and through a digital lens. And so this season is really talking about the different aspects of movement building. So based on your time at standup and, and your other experience, can you talk to us a little bit about how digital plays in building movements? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say about digital in building movements is that digital is a tactic that exists alongside many other important tactics that all come together to build a 360 campaign that allows us to to win and make an impact. But I think it's an important component of that 360 campaign. In addition to the folks who, who are doing the door knocking, who are still doing the door knocking, who are organizing those lobby days on the ground, who are organizing the rally, we also need an, a cost-effective and efficient way to reach as many people as possible with our message in a timely way so that people understand what is happening in their election in the halls of their capital and in their legislatures and how it impacts them and what they can do to make sure that the outcome is one that benefits them and one that they want. And that's really the space that we specialize in, whether it it is communicating with those nearly 2 million members in states across the country or communicating with folks who are not on our list we make sure that people understand when a bill is coming up that is good or bad, that will have an impact on democracy and therefore have an impact on their progress toward a more representative government and what they can do to have an impact, whether that's making a phone call, sending an email, sending a letter to the editor, showing up at a lobby day, showing up at a rally. And we then use our digital tools and expertise to make it as easy for them to do that as possible. Because people are busy. And, you know, one person might have two hours to go to a rally. Another person may only have five minutes to make a phone call or a minute to send an email. And so we make it possible for anyone to take grassroots advocacy action, no matter how little time or how much time you have or what level of commitment you might be at. It's very much an important tactic, but but as I know with you all, right, like tied to a very thoughtful, immediate and long term strategy, right? So like, you're not just sort of like, throwing all these digital things at the wall and seeing what sticks, like, you all understand based on the campaigns you're working on, right, that the folks you're talking to, how to utilize the digital space in such a strategic way. For groups and organizations who 
maybe don't dabble in the digital space as much, whether they're working in coalition, whether they're in an organization, why would it be important for them to focus on the digital space and or at least layer it into the work that they're doing? So first, I'll say just following up on what you just said, Martine, about it being so important for digital to be part of a broader, thoughtful, long-term strategy, that we don't do this work alone, that we always do this work in coalition with other people. Particularly when we're doing state-based work, we do state campaigns and federal campaigns. We're making sure that if we're going to do work in a state, we're talking to the other folks that are on the ground who are there, who know more than we do, who've been doing that work for longer, that we're taking their leadership and being responsive to what they're telling us about what will work and what's important to them, and that we're also only there if we're wanted. And I think that that's really important. And I think with digital tactics in particular, it can be really easy to astroturf a campaign, to just show up and do what you're going to do and put, you know, put out your ads and put out some spam emails, whether or not that actually makes sense for the short-term and long-term strategy of the folks who are there on the ground trying to build toward democracy and trying to build toward justice in the long term, wherever it is that they live. So I'll say that first. I think for organizations that are thinking about whether or not this is an important set of tactics, it might not be what the right focus is for every organization. If you are on the ground doing door knocking, you're on the ground holding community meetings, that is amazing and fantastic work. And you shouldn't feel like you are less than or you're less sophisticated because there's there might not be a digital component to your work. So I'll say I'll say that first, that we really need to place value on that on the ground in-person work. However, digital tactics can absolutely dovetail with the on-the-ground tactics that folks are using. For example, it can make it easier for you to follow up with those folks that you're contacting on the doors. It can broaden the universe of people that you're able to communicate with and talk to. It can mean that there are groups of folks that you might have never been able to reach on those doors or on the phones that suddenly will, will see and hear your message and be able to interact with you, especially young people. And so because I think it is incredibly important to meet people where they're at, I think it's important to, to use digital, to use on the ground, to engage in all these tactics. That's why, that's why we're everywhere from Twitter and TikTok to helping our members publish letters in local papers that are the equivalent of the penny saver and helping our members access on the ground canvassing and organizing shifts with other organizations that are doing that work locally as well. It's critically important that like folks understand for like, what is your focus and what's your lane, right? Like you said, if your lane is you do traditional comms and you work with the media, you're not the best strategist to build a field program, right? If you're, if you're the best strategist for the field program, your brain may not be the best to build digital, but the idea of making sure that you're thinking holistically about your audience and answering the question, does digital make sense to include as part of a tactic? And does that mean bringing in another organization as part of like a coalition member or another like expertise in that space? If you're doing democracy work, maybe reach out to Stand Up America. Maybe we can help. Because the other thing that we do is we actually help other organizations who don't have that capacity set up tools or figure out how they can better use the tools that they already have so that they can make their grassroots action driving and grassroots pressure even more efficient and effective. Are there any, in particular, as you all read, like your lane is, is working in the digital space and adding that capacity to coalitions, campaigns, efforts you're working on. Have there been any particular unique challenges in the way that you all have engaged in the digital space that folks should be aware of or considerations they should make as they're thinking of including this? There are a few challenges that come to mind. The first one is that it's more complicated than you think. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, that it may seem like a tool will be easy to use or function well. Then you discover that because redistricting just happened in your state, that your tool still hasn't updated all of the representatives to cross-reference them with the addresses of their constituents. 
and a campaign that you expected to get started in January with folks calling their legislators might not be up and running until March because the tool provider hasn't made sure that that information is in there or that your voter registration campaign isn't performing well, not because that language you just keep tweaking again and again just isn't right, but because there is some wonky digital thing going on with the Facebook API conversion. <laughs> so yeah. it's more complicated than you think. Or you decide, you know what, I'm going to put some ads up on uh, through Meta on Facebook and you realize you have to get verified, which takes weeks on it because you have to send it through snail mail in order to do that. <laughs> That's a great, that is a great example. <laughs> You're like, well, okay, we're so close, so close. But yeah, absolutely. Understanding sort of the, the parameters that allow you to increase your access and then the limitations around, right? Like the functionality of some of the back end pieces of this. Can every movement or effort, do you think, benefit from an approach of including digital? I think every movement can benefit from it. I don't think, as I said before, necessarily every organization needs to focus on it. But I think every movement can absolutely benefit from it as an important tool. Also, I'll add in the question that you just asked about challenges to think about. I will say to organizations, please don't hire one person and expect them to be able to do Twitter and TikTok and Facebook and Facebook ads and an email program and a texting program and a peer-to-peer texting program, you will kill that person. Each of these programs is a lot of work. So, you know, be reasonable and realistic, especially when you're starting out on digital about where it makes the most sense to start and what you can actually do given your resources. Yeah. And I've seen less and less of this, but it's also um, a rule of thumb not to just hand it off to your college intern or <laughs> like a newly hired person because they happen to be closer to what is cool and hip in the digital space um, and assume <laughs> yeah. that they know how to do all of these like, strategic, <laughs> complicated things. So, so you, you mentioned, right, like stand-up's goal is, is to truly build a representative democracy. And I think you mentioned this a little bit, but could you sort of put a finer point on like, what does that mean to you all as an organization and what you're trying to achieve? I think there are two layers to that. The most basic layer of building a more representative democracy is a democracy where we can each see ourselves represented in the people who are in government and not just seeing older white cis straight men in government, which is what we've traditionally seen, right? Where we're seeing women, people of color, black people, immigrants, trans people, gay people, all of America represented in government. And not just identity, but also class. That the folks that we're seeing in government aren't just the people who have the resources and the connections with the resources to be able to run for public office. And that's why it is so important to make sure that there's public financing of campaigns so that any candidate from any walk of life actually has the opportunity to run and the chance to win. So I think that's that's the first layer. The second layer, uh, which is something that you can achieve once you have the first layer, is a government that actually represents the interests of the American people. That means a government that cares about whether or not we have access to good health care, whether or not people are treated equally, whether or not people are being murdered by the police, whether or not our planet is, is dying, the effects of climate change and the effects of climate change on every community, all the issues that we could think about that impact our everyday lives, inflation, wages, wage equality and inequality. Only when we have a government that truly looks like America can then we then move on to that next stage of a government that actually represents all of our interests and, and functions for everyone and not just the few. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And how do you feel like Stand Up America is is leveraging the digital space to work toward that goal based on the types of campaigns you're working on, the tactics you're utilizing, the communities you're talking to? How does that all sort of weave together? That's a great question. I might give you a long answer. Please. Uh, (laughs) um, So I think first, those three issue buckets that I talked about, within those three buckets, there, there is a lot. So when we think about protecting and expanding voting rights, I think that most of us, 
most of us know that access to the ballot in this country is not fair and it's not equal. And so our, our first goal is to make it fair and make it equal. And the, the kinds of policies that we help pass at the state and federal level include rights restoration, to restore voting rights to people who are formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated, availability of lots of different ways to vote, from early voting to mail-in ballots, so that no matter what your life situation is, there are as many options as possible for you to vote. Because we all know that the more on the margins you are, the more the more jobs you're working, the more stressors there are in your lives, the harder it can be to prioritize something like voting. And so the more options that people have, the more likely it is that the people who actually need government to be most responsive to them are going to be able to access the ballot box. Um, unfortunately, while some we've had a lot of amazing victories this year um, in coalition with amazing groups across the country, particularly in blue states like New Mexico, Minnesota, Connecticut, and New York, passing legislation that expands access to voting. But I think we also know that over the last three years, there has been a huge movement to contract access to voting, to suppress voting access and suppress our freedom to vote. And so we also engage in those campaigns. And we engage in those campaigns even when it seems like sometimes there's no chance of winning right? Like some of the laws that have been passed over the last couple of years in Texas to not just restrict access to the ballot, but most recently during this legislative session, they eliminated the office of the person who was in charge of elections in Harris County, which is where Houston is, um, which is the largest Democratic county in the state, has one of the largest Black populations in the state, And by the way, the head of elections in that county was also a black man. So they were taking away the ability of this county to have any say over its own elections. And then they passed another bill that would allow them to give control over this county's elections to the state, to a state Republican elected official who was appointed by Republican Governor Greg Abbott. Jeez Um, Louise. (laughs) And, you know, we saw many voter suppression laws passed over the last couple of years in Arizona, as well as in Florida with our our friend down there, Ron DeSantis, who literally who who has who passed a law to create election police and has actual police going after people for voting and now is trying to come after groups like ours with his most recent legislation to make it harder to register people to vote and levy up to $250,000 in fines against organizations that don't follow the crazy set of rules that they've laid out. But amidst all of those fights where, you know, we don't know, maybe we weaken the laws a little bit by putting on that grassroots pressure. Amidst all of those fights, we keep trying because sometimes you can win. Like, for example, in Alabama this year, where the Republican-controlled legislature was set to pass legislation that would have made it a felony to help anyone with their absentee ballot. Printing out a felony, a felony, printing out absentee ballot, taking them to pick it up or drop it off, no matter if they're your family member, if they're elderly, if they're disabled, if if they're not fully literate, a felony, and. No one thought that there was any chance of defeating this legislation. But the folks on the ground in Alabama who have have been told for centuries that everything that they are trying to achieve to pull themselves up is impossible, uh, were told by many people that it was impossible to defeat this law. And they kept trying and they asked for our help and we gave we gave our help and we reached out to our community in Alabama and got them to send emails to their legislators. And the Alabama legislature closed the session and didn't pass this bill. Hey, Hey, I, I woke up <laughs> at five o'clock in the morning and saw an email from 1.30 a.m. the night before that they had closed and this bill hadn't passed. And I, I just literally started bawling tears of joy because I couldn't believe it. <laughs> In Alabama. <laughs> in Alabama. <laughs> Keep trying even when it seems yeah. impossible because you just might win. 
That was yes. only one bucket. <laughs> Uh, but it's it is also incredibly incredibly uh, important to continue fighting back against money in our politics because after Citizens United, the, the Supreme Court, which I'll talk about next, basically opened the floodgates for unlimited amounts of money in our politics, infinitely multiplying the voices of the wealthy over the voices of everyday Americans, and. While we continue to push toward a Supreme Court that would overturn Citizens United, I think it's also really important for for us to pass as many campaign spending and contribution limits and as many programs to provide public financing to candidates so that we slowly move toward that truly representative democracy where we're all seeing ourselves represented in government and building a government that does actually represent our interests. And then bucket three, I mentioned breaking breaking down structural barriers conservatives have built to progress. There's a lot of words in that sentence, a lot of wonky words. But what it really means is, you know, looking at things like the Supreme Court. Does the Supreme Court really represent us now? Absolutely not. The conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court right now, of the six of them, five of them were elected by presidents who are appointed rather by presidents who didn't even win the popular vote. Right. So so five of these people not only don't represent our interests, but were appointed by people that most of us didn't even vote for. So we've got to fix that. We've got to expand the court, which is the only way to fix it immediately is by expanding the court. We've got to impose term limits. We've got to actually impose a code of ethics. And while we're at it, We also need to pass the National Popular Vote Compact in states across the country so that we can move closer and closer toward presidential elections where the person who gets the most votes wins. Because we're living in a country now where we're, you know, essentially the majority of us are under the tyranny of the minority because of the Supreme Court, because of how the Electoral College functions and and gives a benefit to less populous states because of gerrymandering that makes it possible for Republicans to have fewer folks who support them in a state, but still control legislatures in the majority of congressional seats. And because of our constitution that overly benefits smaller states in terms of represent, representation in the United States Senate. Oh, and by the way... <laughs> Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico have no voting representation in Congress. Uh, Yes, as a former resident of D.C., please, please, please call your elected officials about statehood for both because we deserve a vote in uh, congressional agendas and, and policy. So that was a lot, which I appreciate because you all do a good bit of work. Talk to me a little bit about, I mean, like you sound excited about everything you're doing, but anything in particular that's happening right now or in the foreseeable future that you're really excited about? Well, I was very excited about Alabama. And I think that I'm excited for us to continue thinking about how we can bring the digital resources and expertise that we have to bear to help folks on the ground exponentially increase their impact, like in places like Alabama, because I think that we often dismiss fights in red states as not being winnable. And so we we don't put our movement resources toward those fights. We have to change the way that we're thinking about that. We have to start somewhere, right? Even, even with the small steps at the beginning, but we have to start building that infrastructure and investing in those folks on the ground who for decades, we've sort of just been leaving at the wayside because we're focusing on right battleground states and states we are like, these are the ones that are going to make the difference. And, you know, not really sure that's been the best, uh, best strategy. So thus far. Absolutely. We asked this to all of our guests as well. Any books, podcasts, TV shows, movies you're, you're digging right now that uh, you want to recommend to our listeners? Yes, I would love to recommend two books. The first one is fairly new. And the second one I read a long time ago. The first one is The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. It came out in early 2021, and I have to say it is one of the best books I have ever read. Um, Heather McGee, as you may know, used to be the president of Demos, and the subtitle of the book is What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And she goes through the book and gives anecdote after anecdote throughout U.S. history 
about how policies that were initially passed in in particular to discriminate against and suppress black people in the United States in the end end up hurting everyone. Great examples that she gives are in the southern United States uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, swimming pools being filled in so that black children could not use them. And the poor white children whose families could not afford private pool memberships didn't get to use the swimming pools either. And I think that this really ties into how I think about particularly our current work on rights restoration, though really all our voting rights work, because the felony disenfranchisement laws that we fight against were passed during Jim Crow to prevent newly freed Black men from voting. But today, though they still disproportionately impact Black people and people of color, most of the people who are impacted by those laws are actually white. And so the the point that she makes at the end of the book is that if we want to succeed in movements, the only way to succeed is by not letting them divide us. Don't Mm -hmm. let them divide us. Movements like the Fight for 15, where people came together across racial identities, are the movements that succeed. And when we don't let them divide us, we can win together. Because we are actually the majority. Yes, yes. The majority of people in this country are not rich, white, straight, cisgendered men. Correct. Women are the majority, in fact. (laughs) (laughs) And the second book that I am going to recommend is Thunder in the Mountains, the West Virginia Mine War. I read this book when I was in middle school because I'm from West Virginia and I'm a coal miner's daughter. But the reason why I was thinking about this book is because I was thinking about the moment when Trump basically sicked the National Guard on protesters in D.C. And one of the key moments in this book, which is a true story of what actually happened in West Virginia when miners were on strike for better conditions in 1920, is that the United States government sent the National Guard in to put down the miners' strike and to forcibly put those miners back to work. And for me, that was just another example of how the same tactics are used to put us all down and divide us. Yeah. And it's important to understand that history. Of course, because it continues to repeat itself, right? And in different ways, but but the sort of the same, again, sort of tactics and, and motivations behind why they're doing it. Thank you for sharing those. Last but not least, how can folks get in touch with you or the work that Stand Up America is doing? Sure. I'm going to go old school and say you could email me <laughs> at Christina, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A, at StandUpAmerica.com. Awesome. Fantastic. So if you want to get in touch with Christina or Stand Up America, we'll put her email in the show notes for you all to get in contact. Christina, thank you so much for imparting your brilliance, for your expertise, for the stories you've shared, and for the work that you've done in your career thus far. I'm so excited to see where Stand Up goes and where... The best days are, I would imagine, are still yet to be seen from you. Thank you, Martine, and ditto to you on all of that. All right. We will be right back. And we're back. So it was really great to talk to Christina. I've I've been able to work with her and her team over the last couple of years now as they have been strategically thinking about how to engage their expertise, their knowledge, right, and marry that with some of the groups and organizations and movements they work alongside in the democracy space. And I think there was a couple of things that she mentioned that I sort of want to call out that I think are really important for our listeners to really be thinking about as you're integrating digital strategy and tools into the work that you're doing is really about budget, right? Like, yes, there are some very expensive ways that you can incorporate digital into your strategies, right, or into your tools. But digital can also be an extremely cost-effective way to get the message that you need to get to the people you need to get it to at the time you need to get it to them, right? And it must exist along other tactics, right? She really talked about how they come in as a digital organizing sort of uh, team and, and experts, but they work alongside some of the other folks in the coalition who are doing the like long-term lobbyist sort of policy engagement work. They're working alongside the folks who are working really on the ground, knocking doors and talking to folks, right? And so that digital is one method to reach people, but not the only method to reach people. 
And I think it's really important for strategy, both in the short term and the long term, to be thinking about how can you incorporate it in a way that continues to help you build your supporter base, that continues to help amplify your message, that continues to help increase your impact. And that different platforms are for different bases, right? It's really important to understand who is on which platform, right? As X Twitter is transformed into X and who knows what's happening there, right? Like, and people leave that to go to threads, right? Or TikTok starts to become much less about sort of fun dances you can do and, and more about political content that, that folks are engaging with, right? Understanding who is utilizing these platforms can be really, really helpful and you utilizing them in a very smart and strategic way that helps, again, link you back to your goals so that you're not sort of throwing everything in the kitchen sink at the wall and see what sticks, but you're choosing TikTok or you're choosing Facebook or you're choosing red like streaming services for a very specific reason. As you all talked about, there's a lot of challenges in the space and understanding the platforms that you're on and who they reach and the audience that they're best suited for is really important. Again, think strategic first and then digital like as tactics second and really how you're going to use digital is really important. Also know that these platforms are changing all the time. You have to be up to date on them and digital does not mean instant, right? Often people make this mistake of thinking, hey, I'm going to do something digitally. Therefore, I can get it live in five minutes. It does not work that way. And so you have to build in time not only to do digital, right, but to do it correctly and make sure that your message is conveyed to the right people in the right way. And that is really important. One of the things that you all talked about, which I think is important, is test, like test different things and then expand, right? Mm -hmm. Don't just like go ahead and do it and try it out, but add that testing component into it. Think about strategy first. And of course, every movement can benefit from digital, but what digital means to your movement is going to be different and how you utilize it is going to be different. So make sure you're thinking about your audience and strategically how you're using it in the right way. Some folks, TikTok may be the right platform. Some folks, it's really digging in and focusing on email or focusing on the website and that engagement first and then building out other platforms next. It really depends on your strategy, and that is key. And, and Bren, again, is, is a uh, aficionado and a passionate devotee to leadership development, always looking for trainings out there. These organizations, right, are constantly trying to stay at the forefront of the ever-changing digital war space, right? Like with the introduction of AI, with different tools coming out on how you can communicate or organize your information, right? I think continuing to get trained yourself, right? Have your have your team get trained because if you are not thinking about it in the same way that digital passed up a lot of movements and organizations very quickly, right? These other tools and technologies are going to pass you up too. And, and you want to be for the benefit of the work that you're doing, the impact you're making and the, and the communities you're serving, right? Not get left behind on some of these things when they can achieve really meaningful change. And again, think quality over quantity. Think about what is right for your movement and strategically go into it, you know, with your eyes open that it's going to take time to grow and build a digital tactic and work on that platform. It takes a while, but if you stick with it and look at metrics and test different things, you will see the benefit. I think the biggest mistake that we see people make digitally is just trying all the things without any metrics and testing, right? This is going to take time. You need to look at what you're achieving. You need to look at what you're doing and you need to make sure your voice is clear, that it matches the tool, matches the audience you're trying to reach. You know, those things have to happen for you to be successful in the digital sphere or in any sphere. So it's really thinking about that strategically. Well, Martin, it was so great to hear you do this interview and Christina's awesome. Agreed, agreed. And we'd have a lot of content on our website at thecampaignworkshop.com, right, on, on digital tools and tactics and strategies, right? There's a tools so, list, Martine. There is a tools list and an ebook on digital advocacy, right? So I implore you, if you have additional questions, to reach out to us and or check out the content that we have on our website. Thanks for tuning into today's episodes. And if you have any questions or comments on movement building in the digital space, again, check out our website at thecampaignworkshop.com. And we'll be sure to have this information in the episode description. 
And again, as always, be sure to like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Until next time, this is Martin Diego Garcia. And Joe Fold breaking down how to win a campaign. How to Win a Campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Phoebe Retta, Evan Wilkerson, and Vienna O'Brien. Music by Daniel Pinto. Audio editing by Christopher Lang. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.